It is so good to hear Bakajan's voice, and it's better to hear that he is doing well, that God has blessed the ministry, people are being saved, first baptism in five years, uh, and to hear about his uh, upcoming uh, wedding, uh, his marriage to uh, Adelia. Uh, he was with us for five weeks, he stayed with our family for about two and a half of those weeks, and I'll tell you guys a story, if you promise not to tell Bakajan that I told you this story. He got engaged like a few days before he came out to Amity. It was kind of a, you know, real good thing. You know, he, he was pursuing her and she finally relented you know, and gave in. And uh, he got engaged a few days before he got here. And they promised to email each other faithfully during the five weeks they was to be gone. He was here for a few days, received no emails from Adelia, emailed her, didn't get anything back. And after a week, he emailed her, no emails back. So during the second week, he was really kind of despondent and discouraged and anxious. And one night, he was sharing with us how burdened he was and how sad that he didn't receive any news from Adelia. And he plays piano, so like, it was like 11 o'clock at night, our daughters are sleeping. And he's sitting on the piano, and he starts playing these like Russian songs. <laughs> so these like E minor chords, like real sad Russian chords, songs, right? And we can't go downstairs and stop him, because he's, as soon was saying, He's playing the Russian blues. <laughs> he's like, he's like pouring out his soul in the in the piano. Well, I can tell the story because it's it's, uh, it's, ha- it's a good report. It turned out that she was emailing him the whole time, but emailing it to his old a- uh, email address, and he wasn't getting it. And so, when he finally found those email addresses, he was playing praise music again. And <laughs> it was all good. And we had a great time. I'm sure all of you had an opportunity to fellowship with Pastor Bagajan. Just uh, Wonderful man of God, solid, uh, firm faith, good shepherd, and had just a sweet time of fellowship with him. And, you know, like, the day he was leaving, and Bob and I were talking yesterday how, you know, we're not touchy guys, you know. And I think that's one of the reasons we kind of get along better, because we're both not touchy and it works for us, you know. And so I think, I don't think I've ever given Bob a hug. You know, I've given other guys hugs, I'm good with that, but... You know, I've never given Bob, Bob's never given me a hug, and it's good, right? I'm not complaining, he's not complaining. But on that day, you know, Pakaja's leaving, you know, and like we're at the airport, and it was definitely sad, because he's going long distance away. He's going to Almaty, Kazakhstan. I mean, he asked us to come to the wedding, but come on, we can't go, we can't see him for, for, for a while at least. And uh, as he was departing, you know, you know I, was, I was kind of moving, he was moving, Marcus and other guys as well, and so gave him a big hug and was sad to see him go and just kind of see him like walk along the gateway, you know, gate to his gate and turn and, and it was a sad thing. Now, what if on that day, you know, Pastor Bhagajan is all sad and all despondent and anxious about leaving and going back to ministry in Kazakhstan and I was like, oh yeah, you better get going now, you know, you're going to miss your flight, oh, I got, I got to go home and have dinner and you know, oh man, next week I got to do this, I got to do that and Oh, you know, uh, playoffs are coming up, and Bakajan, you need to go. And he's like really sad and discouraged. And I was like, all right, I'll give you a handshake. And I, I, I let him go. You know, it would be very sad for him after that kind of fellowship and um, time together for me to respond in that way and send him off in that manner. Well, that is exactly what is happening in John chapter 16. In John 16, in verse 5, I think the sisters will read that verse and will sense there's a, set, a, a tone of sadness in Christ's words. Some of the brothers might miss it. You know, they're just, 
they're interpreting it literally, grammatically, historically. But the sisters, you know, you're interpreting that and you go, you'll say, wow, he sounds a little sad, a little discouraged, a little disappointed. And our Lord indeed is a little uh, disappointed in verse 5. If you remember the context of John 16, this is their last night together. This is their last meal. They've spent three and a half years together, day and night, ministering the gospel, enjoying the joys of ministry and the heartaches of ministry together. And our Lord is about to depart from them and leave. And He's not leaving on a jet plane, right? He's leaving by way of Calvary. He is leaving by way of pain, torture, and suffering, being separated from God the Father on the cross. And yet... The disciples, it is clear, it is evident that they are not concerned about Christ. Really, what is occupying, what's preoccupying them in their hearts, it's a self-centered concern for themselves. Therefore, Christ said in verse 5, But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? No one is asking me. Where are you going? Now, earlier in John 13, 36, Peter did ask, Lord, where are you, go- where are you going? In 14, 5, Thomas asked, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? But those questions were asked when they thought Jesus was going to a different geographical location. He thought he was moving on to another part of Israel. And that's why they were saying, okay, where are you going? Because if you're going to Galilee, we'll go there with you. If you're going down to the southern part of Israel, we'll go there with you as well. But soon as Jesus told them that He is going to the Father, and, be, and therefore they cannot go with Him, no more questions. Because their concern was focused and fixated on themselves. When they heard Christ talk about the hostility that was awaiting them, when Christ told them about the warnings about how the world will hate them, persecute them, unsynagogue, cast them out of the synagogue, and that if the, if the world murders you, they will think they're doing a service to God. When they're hearing these things, their minds just focus inwardly and was concerned about themselves. Therefore, there were no questions. There were no questions. When it was most appropriate for them to ask questions, because... Jesus told them He's going to the Father. He is going to heaven. He's going to God instead in verse 6, because I have said these things to you, I've given you these warnings, sorrow has filled your heart. You know, this, the fact that they were sorrowful reveals that they did not really love the Lord. Right? It should be somewhat bittersweet. It should be both and. Because they know the sufferings that are awaiting them, at the same time, because they know that Jesus is going back to the Father whom He loved, their response should be at the, at the very least bittersweet. Bitter because they're left behind, but sweet because they love the Lord. He's going to the Father. But instead, all they, all they, all they reveal is sorrow and grief showing that they are utterly self-focused in their mindset. In John 14, 28, that's why Jesus said, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. 
Right? Just if you love me, you would be happy for me. You'd be filled with joy and, and you rejoicing because I'm going to the Father. Right? And that's that's what love is, right? When someone is joyful, you rejoice with them. But it was evident that they were not interested. They were not loving the Lord. But they were sorrowful. This is the reason for the sense of sadness in our Lord's words here. Our Lord was grieved because He clearly saw the selfishness of the disciples and they were just mumbling about themselves. Look at verse 7. What a contrast. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. What a contrast. He doesn't rebuke them. He's not angry. He tenderly ministers to them. And Okay, you're thinking about yourselves. Okay, let me, let me, uh, you know, aside your uh, fears, let me comfort you now because you're so worried about the future. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, the paraclete. The comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will make sure I will send him to you. He reassured them that his death and his departure would bring about good. They need not be sorrowful. It is to their advantage that Jesus goes away. And he has said this repeatedly throughout the upper room discourse. Their last evening together... He related again and again, it is good that I go. And he shared with them again and again the benefits to them, the blessings to them of his departure. John 14, 2, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm preparing a room with your name on it. Right? And so when you go, there will be a place for you. John fourteen twelve. I go so that you may do greater works than me. By me going and sending the Holy Spirit, you'll be evangelists and witnesses throughout the world, saving countless more people for the rest of your lives. You will do greater works. John fourteen twenty. In that day you will know after I've departed that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. Through my departure, when I'm with you right now, through my incarnation, we have a physical separation. Our intimacy is purely external. But when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will dwell within you. And at that time, we'll enjoy a spiritual intimacy. A spiritual union that is not possible now, but it will be possible when after I have gone. 14.28 You have heard me say, I'm going away, uh, and I will come to you. Jesus promised. Again, telling them His going will allow Him to come personally and spiritually to the disciples. Jesus made it clear that going away would be to their advantage. Unless He goes, the Spirit cannot come. The Holy Spirit cannot be sent until Jesus has finished His task on earth. And then in verse 8, He gives us further revelation about the work of the Holy Spirit. These are things that were previously unrevealed. Our Lord details the 
the details for us three distinct works of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will be sent, He will come, and He will do these three things in verses 8-11. through 11, is indeed the heart of our passage. It is the heart of our passage. Verse 8, when He comes, He will convict the world. He will convict the world. And stop right there. Let's look at that word, convict. What does that word mean? Um, the Greek word, Greek verb, uh, has two possible meanings. First is condemn. Second means to convince. Condemn and convince. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will condemn the world. He will convince the world. The first sense speaks of convicting with a view toward judgment or sentencing. View towards judgment or sentencing. It is a legal term. You are convicted under the court of law as guilty. And that is what the Holy Spirit will do. The Holy Spirit will declare guilt and pronounce judgment. The Holy Spirit rebukes men and reproves them by declaring them guilty. This does not connote the response of the one who is found guilty. And there are men today in jail. There is DNA evidence, videotape evidence, primary testimonial evidence that they are guilty. The court has found them guilty under the law of a crime, and yet they have no conviction in their hearts. They're not convinced. They're adamant of their innocence. Against all hope, against all reason and reality, they are innocent in their own eyes. Well, that's the sense here. Apart from the condemned response, the Holy Spirit will unilaterally convict men as guilty. The second sense has the idea of convincing a man of his guilt. The Holy Spirit will do more than just convict some in the world. He will actually awaken them to... to, uh, a consciousness of guilt. The Holy Spirit will not only condemn men, but some, He will convince them that they are sinners and convince them that they need a Savior from sin and that Savior is indeed Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Professor Pettigrew said in his book, New Testament, New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit, quote, it is important to note that the idea of conviction is more than an emotional disturbance or an attitude of sorrow, although that might be a part of conviction beyond any emotion. Conviction also carries with it the idea of a convinced state of mind. We can define it as the operation of the Holy Spirit wherein He impresses the evidence of guilt on the mind of the sinner proving to him the truth of his own sin. And the Holy Spirit will do it. In the Old Testament, prophets did this work, right? Prophets. That's why God sent messengers, men, prophets, who will will reprove the nation of Israel and also do the personal work of convincing them of their sins. And the clearest example of this in the Old Testament is King David. Right? He committed... Adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah, and Psalm 32 tells us for one year he was leading church service. 
For one year, he was leading worship. One year, he was leading praise and teaching the Word of God. And, and he had no sense of any kind of shame or guilt. This is out of a clear conscience. So Nathan goes to him. And Nathan says, I heard about a man who was rich and had many sheep. And when a guest came, this rich man stole and robbed a poor man who only had one sheep and took it from him and slaughtered that sheep to feed his guest. And you can see how blind King David is. Who is this man? What kind of a rotten, evil, wicked individual can do this? As sure as I live, right? I will convict this man and, and sentence him guilty. Who is this man? And Nathan, right, as a prophet of God, says, You are the man. David, that's you. That's what you did. You're the king of Israel. And here is your loyal servant, Uriah, fighting in a battle to, to expand the kingdom of Israel. And what do you do? Do you honor this man? Do you, do you re- reward this man? No, you commit adultery with his wife. And then to hide your sin, you murder him. You are the man. And then David is convicted as guilty and he's convinced in his mind of his guilt. And his eyes are opened. And he repents. And he goes to God and he prays. Psalm 51, Create me a clean heart, O God. Give me a new spirit. God, give me a new heart. My heart, my old heart is wrong. It's awful. It's full of sin. It's full of depravity, selfishness. God, give me a new heart. Well, that's the Old Testament. God says in the New Testament, after I go, I will no longer send prophets to do this work because they're, they're limited by just their geographical or, or, or physical limitation. I'll send the Holy Spirit to do the work through every single Christian as they preach the Word of God. Convict them. Convince them. We've experienced it, right? Every Christian here, you have experienced this. Now, your testimony might not be like dramatic like David. You know, you didn't murder anyone, or maybe hopefully not, right? Or you didn't do any, you know, awful sins. But even if you grew up in the church, there was a time, maybe with years after you became a Christian, there was a newfound realization of your blood guiltness of the death of Christ, that you were involved in the murder of Christ, that you had rejected Christ, you were an enemy of Christ, and that you were fully, resolutely cemented in your opposition against Christ, and through the preaching of the Word, through Bible study, through personal reading, you came to that realization, and you were not only convicted as guilty, you were convinced in your mind, I am a sinner. I am guilty as charged. If you have not had that experience, you need to question your salvation because every Christian has had that experience and acknowledged freely of our own sinfulness. It's a painful process, painful experience, but it's a, a necessary one. It is a required one because of our own blindness, because of our own deadness, because of our own depravity. We do not on our own acknowledge that we are sinners. No way. Right. It, is, it is good, this process of the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts, because it drives us to Christ. This pain, this pain drives us to Christ. It is like the pain in our teeth, or a tooth that drives man to the dentist. Right. So many feel 
their teeth sensitive to cold water. They drink warm water, lukewarm water. And then later on, they feel the cavity and kind of feel their tooth. And, wow, there's a little hole there that wasn't there before. Okay, I'm just going to chew on this side. And then they start to feel, when they bite onto something, a, a, a subtle pain in that tooth. And they're like, oh no, what do I do? And we go to Savon's and buy some Orogel. Right? And that pain gets sharper and sharper and sharper. The cavity is not infected. It's touching the nerve of your mouth to a point where you run out of Orogel. You're you know, like a repeat customer at Savon. And you know, you're pumping Orogel down there and the pain doesn't go away. And that day comes where you can't handle it any longer. The pain is so great that you make your first visit to the dentist. You run to the dentist's office, right? And you pay, you know, middle of the night you go there to get your teeth, tooth fixed. Similarly with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us as guilty and seeks to convince us of our sin. If we acknowledge it, leads us to the cure, which is Jesus Christ. But if we deny it, we say, no, 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 I'm good. I'm a good person. Ah, oh, who's perfect? Everybody makes mistakes. Come on, what, do you, what, is the, what does God expect? He's going to understand. He's going to be tolerant. And we justify, rationalize, we delay. And what happens? Our hearts grow harder and harder and harder. And instead of being convinced by the Holy Spirit, we are just convicted by the Holy Spirit and our hearts become hardened to the Word of God. And therefore, we continue on a course to hell. I've seen that in ministry oftentimes. I've talked to people who are burdened by an overwhelming sense of sin. And that's a good thing. That means you have a soft heart. You're like the tax collector who was in the last row of the synagogue and you're so overwhelmed with guilt and sin and shame of your sin that you beat your chest, you dare not even look up and you just cry out, God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. There is hope for you because the Holy Spirit is convincing your heart and is leading you to Christ. At the same time, I've met many who are like the Pharisee, self-righteous, justifying oneself, rationalizing every sin, and therefore they're puffed up with pride, and therefore they're not led towards Christ. What Christ says, Christ said when He comes, He will convict the world. He will do this work of convicting and convincing, and He focuses on three areas of, of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit will focus His ministry. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Because they do not believe in Me. First of all, the, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The word there, sin, is in the singular. He's not coming to convict people of all these sins that we're committing. He, he has come to convict us of that one sin that we are guilty of. And what is that? Sin of unbelief. It is the sin of unbelief. Man's problem, the root of our problem is unbelief. Man's problem is the sin of not believing in Christ. 
not the countless sins that we have committed. John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe, you will die in your sins. When we stand before the great white throne on judgment day, it will not be because of the many sins of our lives will be condemned to hell. No, it is ultimately this one sin that will result in eternity in hell, and that's the sin of unbelief. Sin of unbelief. The issue is your belief in Christ. Now think about this. This is, this is radical. Religion says, confess all of your sins and stop doing all of these sins. Stop smoking, stop drinking, stop partying, stop stealing, stop lying, right? stop cheating, stop lusting, do this, all these things. So religion says, okay, i got to get my act together and stop doing all these sins. Repent of a thousand and one sins and it's impossible. So it produces hypocrisy or produces a lie, right? It produces hardness, a corruptness. That's what religion says. Confess of all these, you know, stop doing all these things. But that's not what the Bible says. Right? All those commands of not stealing, you know, robbing, cheating, and all the other prohibitions are for believers. They're not for unbelievers, right? For non-believers, there's only one command. Repent of your one sin. Believe in Jesus Christ. Stop rejecting Christ as your Savior. Stop trusting in yourself for salvation. Stop trusting yourself for righteousness. Repent of this one sin of unbelief. So how do you repent? By believing in Christ. That is our message. We're not going out there trying to make people moral, trying to make people righteous, trying to make people religious. No, we're going out there telling people you can't be righteous. There's only one sin you need to repent of. It's the sin of unbelief. And if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, then all other sins are taken care of, right? If you believe in Christ, all those countless sins are dealt with on the cross. That's what the Holy Spirit will do to the preaching of the Word through believers. Because they reject Christ of unbelief, He will convict them guilty of unbelief. Or some, or many, He will convince them, I, I do not believe in Christ. It's unreasonable for me to reject Christ. And with sorrow, grief, and guilt, they'll turn and they'll cling to the cross and trust in Christ for salvation. Verse 9, secondly, the Holy Spirit will convict, convict through, convict the world of righteousness, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And what does this mean? There are four possible interpretations here of verse, verse 10. If I go through all four, we're going to forget all four and we're going to forget what the real interpretation is. So why not just cut to the chase and share what, what, what I believe is the correct inter- interpretation. I believe the Lord is saying that, that because He goes away, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will take His place in convicting men of righteousness. The Holy Spirit will take His place of convicting men of righteousness. When Christ was on the earth, He convicted men of, right, of righteousness. And He exposed unrighteousness. Right? John three nineteen through 20 
Um, the light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to Christ. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. So everywhere he went, especially the religious, those who proclaim self-righteousness, he exposed the bankruptcy of the character of their state before God, and he would do this wherever he went. But because he's gone, the Holy Spirit will not come, and he will do the same work of convicting the world, convincing them of righteousness. And then the final one, verse 11, concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged, the Spirit convinces the world of the principle of judgment. Simply that sin brings judgment. Sin brings judgment. God will not be mocked. God will not be ridiculed or laughed at. We break the law and we get away with it. In a way, we're mocking our government. And we got away with it. You know, I made out. I came out ahead. God says the Holy Spirit will convince, convict and convince the world that no one gets away with sin. Sin will be judged. And what is the proof of that? The chief sinner, chief incarnate of evil, the Satan himself, has been judged. John 12:31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Colossians 2:15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. You're learning this in flock, right? Genesis 3:15. The first gospel. The offspring of the serpent, which is Satan, will bruise the heel of Christ. How did he do this? He harmed Christ by His suffering and His death on the cross. But Christ's response is He will bruise His head. He will crush His head. And Christ did. By His resurrection, by His perfect life, by not succumbing to the temptation of the devil, by living a perfect sinless life, by dying and finishing the work that God had given to Him, by rising from the grave on the third day, overcoming uh, sin and death, a proving himself to be the Son of God, he crushed Satan. He destroyed him. Right. It's over. He won. Now the final judgment right, is not to come until uh, Revelation 20, but he is dethroned, just like in Iraq. Right? Hussein is not going to come back to power. He's dethroned. Every day we're losing lives. There's still casualties. But no one fears Hussein anymore. Right? Because he is dethroned. He is defeated. Likewise with Satan. He is dethroned. His ultimate judgment is just a matter of time. Revelation 20.10 The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Consider the past tense. Thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever Christ comforted the disciples with these words. It is good that I go. When I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will do what I've been doing with you all this time. He will convict this world, convict them and convince them of their sin, righteousness and judgment. And this was exactly fulfilled verbatim in Acts chapter 2. After the coming of the Holy Spirit, what does Peter do? He gets up in front of the leaders, the, the powers that be of Israel, of Jerusalem. 
And he proclaims the Word of God. He preaches to them the Holy Scriptures. In Acts 22-23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge to you. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He, He convicts them of sin. You are guilty. All of you here, you are guilty of the death of God's Son, the promised Messiah. And then he, the Holy Spirit convinces them, convicts them of, of righteousness. Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through Him. As you yourselves know, Jesus is righteous. He is sinless. He is perfect. And you yourselves know. And then the judgment. Verse 34-36. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So all, all God's enemies were placed below the feet of Jesus Christ. And now ancient Near East, that Eastern culture, the greatest shame was to have somebody take their shoe off and slap you with their shoe, right? In ancient Near East, you go there, you never expose the bottom soles of your feet. You don't go and sit down and and cross your legs and show your feet, because that's an offense. That's why when Hussein's statues were thrown down, what did they do? Little boys would pick up their sandals and slap Hussein's statue's face with their soles of their feet as the worst degrading, degrading matter of insult. That's what... God will do. Jesus will put all His enemies under His feet. Make Him a footstool. Judgment. Convince, convict the world of judgment. Well, the Holy Spirit did this. But did the Holy Spirit convince these men of, their, of sin, of Christ's righteousness, and their future judgment? Yes, the Holy Spirit did. Just as Christ promised. Verse 37. The very men, many of them who scoffed, mocked, insulted Christ, many of them who were possibly involved in the conspiracy to murder Jesus Christ. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. A month and a half ago, their hearts were hardened, calloused, unmoved by the beauty and the holiness of Christ. Here they they hear the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, this, of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, Those who received His word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls were saved that day. What a supernatural miracle that the Holy Spirit wrought. In the New Testament times, the Holy Spirit is still with us. Holy Spirit is still in our midst. Holy Spirit is still powerfully working through the Word of God to convict and convince souls. And uh, we're sitting that past two weeks interviewing uh, uh, those who seek to be members and hearing their testimonies, hearing how God brought them to salvation. We saw again and again the work of the Holy Spirit. 
convicting, convincing hearts to trust in Christ and to be saved. You know, I went through my files to look for a, a testimony of someone more recent who came to Christ, and I came upon this. I wanted to share with you a great testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit of the Word of God. It's found in the story of the conversion of a man named Tokichi Ishe, a man who was hanged for murder in Tokyo in 1918. He had been sent to prison more than 20 times. He was known as being cruel as a tiger. On one occasion, after attacking a prison official, he was gagged and bound to the point where his toes barely reached the ground, but he stubbornly refused to say he was sorry that he regretted anything for his crimes or for murder. He was utterly unremorseful for any cruel acts that he had committed. Just before being sentenced to death, he was sent a New Testament by two Christian missionaries, uh, Miss West and Miss McDonald. Uh, when, when they visited him, they read to him the story of Jesus' trial and execution. His attention was riveted by the sentence where Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they did not know what they were doing. This sentence transformed his life. He wrote, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it His compassion? I did not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart, I believed Tokichi was sentenced to death and he accepted it as the fair, impartial judgment of God but with heart with his heart rejoicing and praising he went to his death maintaining his testimony to the Lord such conversions happening throughout the world and right now and it is all the work of the Holy Spirit which Christ promised to us on the evening before his departure well, a few applications to close our time. I can see uh, three applications, three uh, practical ways that these truths apply to us. First of all, because the Holy Spirit has been sent and He operates through the Word of God, you and I, we must preach the Word. We must preach the Word of God. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the euangelion. I'm not ashamed of the Bible. I'm not ashamed of the Scripture. Why? It is a dunamis of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul said, Woe to me if I do not preach the Gospel, the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God and therefore the Word of God is powerful. The world will not read the Bible. They will not open up the Bible and meditate on it. They will not ignore it. They will not neglect it. They will not cast it aside. 
Therefore, we must herald this message and proclaim it to the world by preaching it. The Kerusa, heralding it, declaring it aloud, preaching the Word of God is God's ordained way of salvation of lost sinners. It is a God-ordained way of how men are convinced of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Think about it. God could have used a thousand and one ways to get His message out. But He ordained that He would do it through preaching. You know, people, when I go out witnessing, people tell me, you know, yeah, you know, I don't think preaching is the way to do it. You know, you guys shouldn't be out here bothering us and telling us about the Bible and, and preaching to us and telling us about our sin and, and guilt and transgression. I don't think this is the way you ought to do it. And one time I actually did this. I said, you know what that is? He said, what? Your opinion. That's all it is. That's your opinion. And that's all it is. That's no weight. Has no authority. Has no power. That's what you think. And who are you? What does God say? What is the God-ordained way of saving sinners? It's through preaching. You know, this idea of lifestyle evangelism apart from preaching the gospel is ludicrous. It is unbiblical. It is ineffective. And it is, it is sad for those who are in your life your friends, your family members, if you hold to this philosophy of lifestyle evangelism and waiting for that perfect opportunity to preach the gospel, you know, we pray for those that are in your lives. Because that's not God. God's ordained way is not through life alone. It's preaching the gospel supplemented by life. But it is through preaching. Jesus, when He came, He preached when Paul came, he proclaimed the gospel. 1 Timothy 2.7 For this I was appointed a preacher. 1 Corinthians 1.17 Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It is God's ordained method. It is always powerful, always life transforming, and always relevant. And I was so encouraged to hear yesterday at the car wash that many of you are preaching the gospel. Many of you, and I'm, I know that God was pleased because that's why the Holy Spirit is here. Second application is trust in the Holy Spirit to work through the Word of God. Trust in the Holy Spirit to work through the Word of God. Now the question is, how do we trust in the Holy Spirit to work through the Word of God? We trust the Holy Spirit if we are preaching Christ in Christ alone. If we are preaching the Bible, we're trusting in the Holy Spirit. If we deviate from the Bible, and we try to uh, use secular philosophies, evidences, worldly arguments, manipulation, right? um, methodology, right? um, you know, there's a book called, I think all marketers are liars, right? I might buy that book and read it. Intriguing title. I agree with that. Especially those who try to market the church and market the gospel. If we try to market the gospel employing secular philosophies, then we're not trusting in the Holy Spirit. Trusting in the Holy Spirit, how do we do that? By preaching Christ and Him crucified. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you with lofty speech, 
or with secular wisdom. I resolved in my heart to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in the, with the words of wisdom as you define wisdom of this world, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So how is it that the Holy Spirit works and reveals His power? When we come in weakness, what is your message? Just the Bible. What is your proof? The Bible. What is your argument? The Bible. Circular reasoning. Right? Jesus is God. Why? Because He is. Right? Who He said He is? Because He rose from the grave. How do you know? The Bible says so. That's foolishness in the eyes of the world. But no, it is the power of God. And when we just preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts men and He convinces men. And when they are saved, all glory goes to the Holy Spirit. All glory goes to God. It's not because, wow, I thought of that illustration. You know, I had those evidences, right? You know, Noah's Ark, they found it, you know. <laughs> All these, you know, ontological you know, uh, arguments for the existence of God. Or, you know, no. It's the Word of God. That's how we trust the Holy Spirit if we faithfully teach the truths of the Bible. Paul repeated that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Therefore, we do not preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servant. Final application. A simple one. Don't hinder the work of the Holy Spirit by living in sin. Don't hinder the work of the Holy Spirit by living in sin. The Holy Spirit is powerfully active. He's been sent here for this purpose to convict and convince men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But when professing believers tolerate sin, participate in sin, and live in sin, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You're hindering His work. You are... You're, you're uh, I'm slowing Him down. You're... you're, you're clouding the, the perfect picture of Christ in the mind of unbelievers and you are uh, hindering the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? Don't live in sin. Right? Don't compromise. Don't be worldly. Right? Don't be unholy. Right? For the sake of the elect in the world, live holy lives. Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 4.11 is a prisoner for the Lord and I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Titus 2, 1-10 is all about that, right? That the word of God may not be reviled. So that our opponents may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul is saying Titus teach them how to live righteous lives so that we might not hinder the Holy Spirit's work, but we might aid in the Spirit's work, the work that He has been called and sent to do. Let's pray.
a Holy Father, we know the truth of this passage doctrinally through our study in John 16, but also experientially. There was a time when we were blind to the beauty of Christ. There was a time we were resolute in our hatred of you and living for sin. A time where our hearts were just cold and we were proud of our independence of you, proud of telling you you were wrong, the Bible is wrong, and that we are right. And then one day, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, convinced our hearts that we were wrong. And you opened our eyes to see our sin and shame and our guilt. And that drove us to Christ, caused us to run to Him. And He, with open arms, embraced us, accepted us, and gave us eternal life, forgiving us of all our sins. O Lord, therefore, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit, may we be men and women who faithfully proclaim the whole counsel of God's Word and preaching it, heralding it, declaring it aloud that we would not be ashamed of this message of salvation, but we would herald it loud and clear that men might hear, be convicted, convinced, and be saved that the Holy Spirit might do its work, do His work. And that, Lord, that You will receive all the glory. We will not depend on anything, anything or anyone else, but we will depend on the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And, oh, Lord, that we will live holy lives so that we will not hinder or agree the Holy Spirit in any way. That the Holy Spirit will be free to use us as He desires for the purpose for which He was sent. Jesus' name.